0: Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Spotify. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life. While others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today, welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner, covering the Gilded and Progressive Ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic: Let's put on a show, or Gilded Age vaudeville. The Gilded Age saw many things in American life expand from the local and the regional to nationwide scale. Thanks to massive amounts of money, new technologies, growing cities, and throngs of immigrants looking for a better life. One of the most important of these was mass popular entertainment. From amusement parks to ragtime music, Nickelodeons to jazz, the United States was becoming the world epicenter of fun. And few entertainment endeavors did more to cement that reputation and serve as the foundation for the cultural behemoth America would become in the age of Hollywood than vaudeville. But what exactly was vaudeville? Who participated in it and why? Who enjoyed it, who condemned it? And what can we learn from its rise and fall for understanding American entertainment entrepreneurship today? With me to discuss these questions and more is Travis D, entertainment history lover extraordinaire at his cultural blog, Travelinch. And the author of no applause just throw money the book that made vaudeville famous chad
1: welcome well hi ari thanks for having me on your program pleasure's all mine so let me start with the question
0: that i ask uh, almost all my guests in discussing this era let us imagine an erstwhile alexis de Tocqueville or one interested in entertainment comes to visit the united states a little bit after the Civil War at the end of the 1860s, in the middle of our period in the 1890s, and at the end around uh, the 19, 1920, 1921 to inquire into the state of democratic popular culture in the unite in the growing democracy that is the United States. What would they find?
1: What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? <laughs> that's, that's the content of my entire book. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's very apt when you talk discuss uh, the Gilded Age as a period of change and it's parallel to when we're living right now. Because um, at the beginning, in many ways, it was not unlike the way it had been for centuries. Uh, you know, it's uh, isolated theaters by um, individual entrepreneurs or actor-managers, in stock theaters or what they called opera houses or saloons, uh, and, um, very catches catch can, uh, very fly by night. Uh, and then as some of the technologies you've described, like telephones, telegraphs and, uh, transportation technologies like, um, trains and, uh, steamships and so forth started to enable, uh, very, I don't want, to, I don't want to, to impose a value judgment like the word greedy, <laughs> but uh, very enterprising um, entrepreneurs to, uh, to be redundant, um, to uh, start investing in multiple theaters and building entire chains that uh, eventually grew and grew and kind of consolidated into a, an entire national network that kind of laid the groundwork for later stuff like the cinema chains and uh, radio and TV networks. So by the time uh, of the 1920s, what, when you're talking about uh, vaudeville, was uh, an American institution apparently as solid as any other, uh, like say the publishing world, you know, or um, or a government or something. So when it when it finally did get supplanted by the other or later media it was astonishing to everyone because it 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 was in every town you know some towns had multiple vaudeville theaters so for for my for my
0: uh, for my listeners who may have heard the term vaudeville but don't really have a very clear idea of what it is <laughs> yeah. what did it mean for the people at the time if i asked someone
1: what's vaudeville what would they say oh yeah yeah so i addressed the change but i didn't address what the actual thing is um vaudeville is uh uh, nearly synonymous with variety or a variety show what it means is a form of entertainment where there's a uh, almost like a parade of, of different acts uh in succession with no necessary thematic connection between any of them so uh you know it was before tv and it was before the internet obviously and so um to keep people from being bored they'd have programs that uh, would consist of uh some performance styles we still enjoy like singing dancing uh stand-up comedy or the the older equivalent um short plays and so forth but also things we associate with the circus like uh, jugglers and acrobats and animal trained animal acts and um not really so much uh, the striptease sort of thing. That was in burlesque. That was kind of a different form. But a um, oh, ventriloquist uh, is with one of the oh, magicians. All of those uh, sort of in a row. And they would do an act of maybe 10 or 15 minutes, uh, depending on their status. Uh, and the show could go all day, or it could go for an hour or two. Um, and before radio, that was about All anyone had to do for entertainment and I would literally just go to see these performances live
0: cool so bringing that up who was the sort of person because you mentioned in your book that this era saw the transition of variety shows from being a sort of semi-reputable thing that only the seedier parts of American society would see in like a sort of flim flammy dime museums or bowery bars to something that even upscale middle-class respectable americans could see so how how did that
1: change come about and why uh, yeah i think a couple of reasons but some were um the had to do with the say the constitution of the empresarios themselves uh Gilded age kind of conso- coincides with what we we call the victorian era which obviously in the u.s we didn't have a queen but we still kind of call it victorian era um and so there were these mores that kept uh ordinary middle class people who in, in those days uh were uh, much more religious than mainstream culture is nowadays uh and sort of uh with a kind of code of morality that prevented them from going to where sort of um to the kind of entertainment that um I don't want to use words of value judgment about the kind of people who went to saloons. But, you know, the, that clientele was all male and working class. That's the kind of place where you saw uh, girly shows, leg shows, lots of alcohol and so forth. So um, one man uh, who was very important to this evolution is a guy named Tony, Tony Pastor. Yeah, He was an Italian-American in New York City. He'd worked for P.T. Barnum, uh, and he'd been a boy singer, very religious Catholic man. Uh, and he started hosting shows in saloons, which is kind of where uh, most of that ent- entertainment happened in New York, um, and sort of did sing-alongs with the audience and stuff. But he himself was not a rowdy kind of guy. He was a family man. So he he kind of had aspirations and a vision uh, of creating a show that would have none of that. Um, and simultaneously in uh, Boston, which is kind of famous for its puritanical values, uh, a man named uh, B.F. Keith, uh, Benjamin Franklin Keith, and his right arm, um, Edward Albee, who's the grandfather of the playwright, uh, they c- kind of got a similar thing going. This is in, the say, the eight- 1880s. Uh, and... Um, and so, they started out with a kind of dime museum, which is a museum where you might see freaks and so forth. We no longer call them that, but um, a freak show. And um, and they started introducing entertainment. And uh, by and by, what they started doing, and several people had this sort of vision simultaneously. And it wasn't just because they were saints, it's also because they saw the uh, the economic potential of admitting uh, women and children who were kind of it wasn't necessary to forbid them they wouldn't go in to the old style saloon variety shows so um so the now they advertise that their family acts you know and um and that and it lo and behold it worked um it was a big hit it kind of resonated with the victorian spirit so building up on top of that uh, you'd nicely
0: described the managerial side uh, and also uh, in your book you described the very ruthlessly consolidating side how keith and Alby basically bought everybody out and dominated everybody else um, but what about the people who tried to become famous and wealthy in vaudeville because you described them interestingly on the one hand uh, many of them came from poor or difficult backgrounds they were immigrants they had uh, bad or often very strict families on the other hand, you described them as more individual entrepreneurs than, say, uh, actors on a stage or in a, an orchestra, where you ha- where solidarity is the key rule. Um, was that entirely true? Uh, I mean, I know you mentioned that they didn't join unions. Did they? Were there any efforts at like mass mutual support, like there often was in this era, or was it very much whatever individual friendships you had, whatever family you had? And the rest was watch your back from being stabbed. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, and I liked you know, in listening to your um, your personal essay about what interested you about the Gilded Age versus progressivism and stuff. There, there actually were a couple of attempts attempts to unionize in Vaudeville when things got pretty dire. Um, the there had previously been one in English Music Hall called uh, the Water Rats, and so. Um, the American attempt was called the White Rats. Uh, and you know there there was I mean, what happened into the as you get into the twentieth century, the the kind of cabal that the vaudeville managers were putting together had all sorts of costs, like um, like the performers they they were they double dipped. they they were the booking agency and the venue for which they were booking the acts so they charged they charged the actors you know f- from 5 to 10% to book them into their own theaters and stuff like that really and you know and and had rules about that they you know of exclusivity they couldn't perform at other chain theater chains or they couldn't uh, later on they weren't allowed to do radio things like that so um the actors obviously got um uh, mad about it and went on strike on a couple of occasions and in both cases uh the strikes were broken basically by the vaudeville equivalent of scabs and other you know opportunities and also the the um the combination would would uh offer key people um lots more money to come back you know and so they would be strike breakers so the so those existed but yeah as you say you know it's like a also you were talking about the Jacksonian era too. this is you know it builds on that like there's some great spirit of democracy, you know it's the people's theaters and everyone's heart and soul is in that as an idea. but it's not what we think of as uh, as a socialistic idea you know it's it wasn't about and so that's one reason the unions didn't wouldn't work with particularly among vaudevilles who are, stray cats you know they're all very individual people um they like to they like to get together and have social uh organizations like clubs and drink together and and have a good time together but when it came to um when it came to their livelihoods they were all very individualistic and they all wanted to get rich they you know it there are exceptions, you know, I, some people who just wanted a living. But I think the ones that we hear the most about, the ones who who really strove to become names that we now recognize and hear about, uh, those ones were looking to get rich and famous.
0: So looking to get rich and famous, uh, especially in entertainment, has often been about uh, going to the city. Uh, and I noticed uh, in your book that Um, the two big giants of vaudeville in this era. One was centered around New York, and the other was centered around Chicago. Uh, And on the other hand, you described how they often ran into, I guess they'd call it, tough crowds outside of those places when they tried to hit the smaller towns and whatnot. But was it really... Did they really receive a uniformly negative reception, or was it mixed? Did they simply have to tailor their act more to their sensibilities like they did to other like they did to make it more Victorian.
1: Yeah, they definitely had to tweak. Um, and most of the good, good ones found ways to do it. Um, but yeah, you know, like a smart, smart talking, fast talking, New York style, urban comedian would have to figure out local, local things to talk about, uh, so that they would resonate with the audiences. And, um, and so they did you know um but uh and then there were some regions uh that were so immigrant heavy that uh that a highly verbal act wouldn't work so well um and so uh that's a place where say acrobats and other very accessible visual style acts would work uh and if you were a smart verbal act you would figure out again how to how to keep the crowd happy? You maybe juggle or sing a sing a song that you wouldn't ordinarily sing, or something like that, so they could latch on to it. Um, yeah, so it's. I mean, it, it was kind of endemic to the to the lifestyle that you had to t- tailor, and you you might fail at something initially, but you would quickly learn that when you got out to the sticks, as they called it, you had to you had to uh, go with the flow. Speaking of appealing to different uh, audiences, you uh,
0: discuss a lot about how uh, immigrants or social outsiders were a very disproportionate part of uh, people who went into vaudeville, uh, people who uh, got rich and stars from vaudeville. Uh, But part of what you describe also is uh, how there was a lot of where a lot of a lot of people enjoyed acts which played off of sometimes i guess very crude uh stereotypes of uh, jews of irish of germans uh, and especially of black americans and there seem to have been um one they see they present two very interesting views on the one hand you have people like for instance the naacp which managed to shut down uh, the hardcore minstrelsy and blackface by the by the 1910s on the other hand i forget who you quote who said that part of that the jokes that people told of each other were more about well now so-and-so is a part of us and we can laugh together and we can all make fun of each other so was the reception of these sorts of jokes uh was it mixed was it negative was it you know what, at least everybody's making fun of everybody, Uh, and were there differences, say, between how uh, Jews, Germans, and Irish make fun of each other and the aforementioned blackface?
1: Well, it's, um, yeah, it's all gray, and I, I think we wouldn't be where we were where progress wouldn't have taken so long if people weren't so ironically easygoing about it back then. Um, one thing you should know, and it's difficult for modern people to wrap their heads around, is that the all the immigrant groups plus uh, Black Americans all um, participated in this and lampooned themselves. As much as they were the object of other people's, you know, e- even as uh, as mean as and unfair as blackface is, uh, black Americans first broke into show business in blackface, uh, you know, doing stereotypical characters, um, and some some ethnic groups kind of love and embrace uh, things that you know kind of objectively are. Would seem stereotypic about their cultures, Jews and Irish, kind of like play with their own ethnicity for their own amusement. Um, that said, yeah, they are definitely comedians who were mean, you know, uh, in in their lampooning of stereotypes. Um, I do, but I do, I think that was more the exception than the norm. Um, I think it would make people uncomfortable, and at the very very least. Uh, I would imagine make trouble in a theater, (laughs) you know, like fights could break out if if the if it wasn't in a seemingly good spirit. Nowadays, you know, I mean, this is our ongoing conversation now about wokeness and so forth. Nowadays, um, we've reached a point, uh, and I I think it's kind of a natural point, uh, but we're having this discussion now where it's like it's not we're not going to have the gray part any more because some it's allowed some people to continue to think it's okay to be cruel and mean or unjust or whatever and so some people are drawing the line um and it's causing a lot of contention i you know i feel like all contemporary comedians are talking about this in some way because a lot of a lot of that kind of they feel they're losing the freedom uh to to be funny in that way. But on the other hand, uh, you know, it's kind of tired at this point. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I, you know, I don't know what can be said about it, but I I do know that in those days it it was, it also functioned as a way for all of these different cultures, these diverse cultures to learn something about one another, uh, even if it was like a cartoon, of what their folk character is you know very nicely put um I think so. bit of a bit of a
0: bracketing here um you mentioned um in the book towards the end of, which will which we'll get to more in depth in the next question but um You mentioned how uh, one of the ways in which vaudeville was preserved, I might say in amber or maybe just preserved, uh, for succeeding generations was how a lot of people who had been in vaudeville, certainly later vaudeville, uh, performed for the troops in the USO in World War II. But there was a previous war where millions of Americans took part uh, and which there was a lot of uh, development of culture and so on and so forth. And that was the first world war. And I was curious to know just how involved were uh people at least stars of vaudeville how involved were they uh in that in the war effort uh in bringing the uh, for instance did pershing
1: for instance let them
0: uh, go and entertain the troops while they were in the trenches <laughs>
1: um well it you know world war one was sort of a different thing um we were only in the war for the last year or so um mm-hmm. And prior to that, as with World War II, sadly, America was divided about whether we should participate in it at all. So, like, early on, there were even um, anti-war plays on the vaudeville stage, you know, Um, completely the opposite of the patriotic songs like Over There, uh, which uh, came into being when we got into the war. Um, One immediate... Uh, side effect of the war was that um, previous to it there'd been all of this international uh, touring of circuits so we had lots of British acts from the music hall playing on American stages and suddenly those were gone from America because you couldn't you know sailing was too dangerous you might get sunk by a German you know boat so um, uh, but uh, there wasn't yet a uh, an organized uh, USO in World War One, um, but there was entertainment. Um, Jack Benny got his first experience entertaining troops when he was in the Navy. Uh, Buster Keaton was in served in the Army, and obviously, if you got somebody like that in serving, you put them to work entertaining. Also, Elsie um, Janis is probably the most famous uh, entertainer to To um, perform for World War One troops, she was a funny impressionist and singer, and she went over there. She's kind of like notable for, uh, for really making that kind of effort. Uh, the, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like the USO where like we formally put hundreds and hundreds of troops on the road to entertain troops, but there were some who made the effort. So
0: they participate in the war effort. The war is over, uh, and the 1920s come, and ostensibly. Uh, vaudeville is now ready to just succeed beyond its wildest dreams uh, there's a social revolution where people want to be more liberal about all sorts of mores uh people want more entertainment you have radio you have all these things you have uh you have the, the allure of prohibition of uh, drinking a little booze and yet somehow this is when vaudeville starts to die and i thought perhaps if you could explain how that happened Cause it seems very yeah.
1: <laughs> I think we're still we're still kind of riding the way. Well, what's what I saw while I was working on the book and it, and and sort of becoming better at articulating is that was a vaudeville was a phase in the technological revolution of the world. So and it begins with rate uh, with telephonic communication. Uh, and it comes all the way to, um, to social media and the age of TikTok. Um, it basically, the technology, you know, the vaudeville is still here. What the, what the, as a entertainment form, it's not here as an industry where you go physically go to theaters anymore, but the, what vaudeville was, uh, got transplanted to radio and movies and television and now the internet. Um, so that's, that's one thing. So it was that kind of got superseded as a technology. You know, it's like why we don't fly in hot air balloons anymore. We fly in airplanes. Uh, I mean, <laughs> not many people rode in hot air b- balloons anyway, but, um, and then another factor was, uh, it really died, uh, when, uh, talky f- films came in, sound films came in just at the same time as the depths of the great depression. And so you, there might've been times when, uh, in the past where you might've wrote out something like that, but the combination of the factors kind of proved fatal. There, there wasn't the, the money to write it out. And also, uh, there's something about American culture. Uh, I often think about, um, uh, the you know we use these words conservative and liberal right. Uh, there's a way in which uh, the English have different ideas of those words. So in a place like England, um, they have this tradition, or France, say you know they they have these uh, national tr- traditions and they believe in preserving them. So uh, even at the even if it costs, even if it doesn't make a profit. So in England, things like um old time radio and vaudeville or music hall, which was their equivalent, uh continued, you know, uh, for you know, their radio drama never died. And they had uh vaudeville as late as say the 1950s, almost to the time of the Beatles. Um and uh it's because it, because of and it's something uh from their point of view, is a conservative impulse. Here in America, we associate preservation with with as being more of a, a liberal elite kind of thing, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, it's like the the classical liberal thing is uh, burn it down, tear it down, build something new. And so, in in a, in the U.S., another reason Vaudeville wouldn't survive is we don't we don't seem or as a culture to have that preservationist instinct. It's like, ah, that's outmoded, tear it down, build the radio, and, uh, we'll go to the movies now. Uh, makes a lot of sense.
0: Uh, and the truth is, is that you mentioned social media. I was actually going to ask, and now there's no need to, is that, um, Nowadays, really, it does seem uh, YouTube, TikTok, all these things, where you have individual entrepreneurial entertainers who do all sorts of things on videos, and you have the even the same structure: you have a small amount of stars at the top, you have a middle level of people who sort of make a living, you have people who effectively that's their hobby. So it sounds like it, it continued, like you said, just with a different technology. I would like to uh, finish off with one last question, which actually was kind of odd to me you mentioned in the book how very few people have written histories of vaudeville and i found that extremely odd given how incredibly influential this was i mean far more niche cultures have had lots written about it what happens
1: uh you know it's real you know it's a downright chilling it's why i wanted to write my book in the first place because also um i'm probably a little bit older than you but i uh as recently as the 1970s and the early 1980s, most Americans, I think, would have had some, at least a vague idea of what vaudeville was. Because there were TV variety shows that paid homage to it. And we had some older entertainers who talked about it on talk shows and uh, stuff like that. Uh, and then kind of really quickly, when those people died out uh, and we moved past network television into uh uh, the internet age, really, um, where you kind of have uh, an unfocused uh, media. You know, in other words, everyone watched three network TV networks in the 1970s. Everyone watched the same things. Now it's kind of random how you discover anything. So, um, so vaudeville died out. Yeah. I mean, when I talk about my book or talk about vaudeville, uh, the majority of people, or young people anyway, will need that explained to them but it was everywhere in america in every town it was it was as um important as um hollywood movies you know um and so it's very strange as you say that would suddenly uh have vanished and and to get to your point about books um it goes to to that idea of um of things being outmoded in America I think the generation that came up in the 40s and 50s vaudeville uh was very much out of favor and thought of as un- unbearably corny you know just like mm-hmm. just the uh the limit of sort of 1890s uh you know before this before even the 1920s sexual revolution right mm-hmm. you know women in like uh <laughs> dresses down to their ankles and uh bicycle built for two and um barbershop quartets (laughs) stuff's coming back in now barbershop quartets um so um and then everyone died before it there became to came to be an interest in, in it again so there's you know maybe a dozen books uh from back in the day and a lot of them are not very scholarly some are by um by newspaper critics who knew vaudeville pretty well and uh yeah, and there are there are others besides mine that are quite good. There's a book called Blue Vaudeville. I forget the author's name. He deals with sexuality and vaudeville. and So um, the more the merrier. Yes, indeed, and uh, I hope uh, we do indeed see
0: more, although your book is definitely an introduction I uh, heartily recommend to anyone who wants, uh, wants to start understanding this fascinating and important subject. Chad, thank you very much for coming on. I have learned a lot, and I hope our listeners learn a lot. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that uh, you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Spotify, and you can support the podcast on Patreon, and uh, listen to fascinating guests like Travi. Thanks a lot, Ari. It was great. <music>